0: Today we've come to Revelation chapter 4 and we're going to have the whole of chapter 4 today but it's a reasonably short chapter. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning And by your will they existed and were created. The very first word in the book of Revelation in the original Greek is apocalypsis, which means unveiling, it means revelation. It means that something was hidden, but now it's been revealed. And at several points in the Revelation, there is a distinct change of scene where something new is revealed. And today we've come to one of these changes of scene. So let's have a bit of a recap. In chapter 1, we began with John having a vision and he saw Jesus walking among the seven golden lampstands which represent the churches. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictated to John seven letters, one for each of the churches. And over seven weeks, we've studied each of these seven letters. And some of us might have been a bit surprised at what Jesus sees when he looks at a church. The churches that, humanly speaking, look to be doing the best, well, they actually weren't really doing so well. They were either dying or they made Jesus sick to the pit of his stomach. Those who thought that they were rich were actually spiritually poor. Those who had the reputation of being alive were actually spiritually dead. They were half-hearted about their faith, they weren't witnessing, and they were trusting in their own resources instead of depending on Jesus. Some of the churches were folding to the pressures of the world. The values of the world were being taken on by those within the church. Immorality, idolatry, and compromise of all sorts. There was a church there that did stand strong in what they believed, and they were all very theologically correct, but they didn't love. And Jesus said to them, a church that doesn't love is not my church. No matter how right your theology is, no matter how strong you stand against what you believe is wrong, If you don't love, you're not my church. Some churches were being infiltrated by false teachers who were turning people's hearts away from truth and bringing in false teaching and bringing in the worship of other gods and once again, immorality. And all but two of the churches were being persecuted. In fact, those who were going through the most severe persecution, those who were dying for their faith, were the churches who were faithful. What's going on? The churches who in Jesus' eyes were alive, that is the churches who were witnessing for him, those who were faithful in belief, and they were faithful in their actions, they were really it. They were being starved, imprisoned, and even executed for their faith. What's going on? Where is God in all of this? You know, Many people are of the opinion, if you're obedient to God, it's all going to go well for you. Well, this revelation of Jesus Christ makes it very clear that that is a very human perspective, not a godly perspective. Because those who are are being obedient to God, they were the ones who were it. And so I ask the question again, where is God in all of this? And we get the answer to that question in chapter 4. God is on his throne. It may be very tempting looking with human eyes to to come to the conclusion that at this stage of history and in our stage of history that maybe God's just taken a back seat. One could come to the conclusion that that the world is either running itself or Satan's in control of everything. But in chapter 4, We're invited into the throne room of heaven, and it's revealed. God is on his throne. Yes, his faithful are being persecuted. Yes, physically speaking, the unfaithful do seem to be gaining the upper hand. But the history of the world is not out of control. History continues to be his story. And so the scene of the revelation changes, and the throne room of heaven is revealed. And if I were to sum up the whole of chapter 4 in one word, I couldn't choose any other word than the word worship. Worship. How does one describe the indescribable? What words could one use to to describe a scene that, that would just make someone stand in awe and wonder? In the introduction to Revelation, I said that the book of Revelation is what's known as apocalyptic literature. That means it gives a message with pictures and images and symbolism. And so... What we read here in chapter 4, it is telling us about the worship of God and his awe and his majesty. It's probably not a literal description of what heaven actually looks like. What it is, is symbols and images to help us to understand about the worship of God and his awe and his majesty. So let's begin. Right at the beginning of Revelation, John heard a loud voice that, that he described as a loud voice like a trumpet. And that ended up being Jesus' voice. And now John looks and he sees a door standing open in heaven. And this same voice, the voice of Jesus, says, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this all right there's nothing random about history there never has been God hasn't lost control of the situation these things must happen God has determined it these things will happen they must happen and at once not physically but in the spirit John is standing in heaven And God is seated on his throne. And and John describes him as having the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. You you see what I mean? How does one describe the indescribable? If you were to at some stage encounter all the glory and majesty of God, how does one describe it? You describe it in terms of the most amazing, beautiful things that you've ever seen. When Ezekiel had a similar vision, he too used gemstones and a rainbow to try and describe the glory of Yahweh. Verse 4 Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on these thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. With golden crowns on their heads. Now, we don't know exactly what this means, but we do know this. In this revelation, those who wear white clothes equals those who have been made holy through Jesus Christ. Those who are wearing white, who have white garments, are those who have been made holy, they're God's people. We also know the ones who are given a crown are those who have conquered, those who have run the race and their faith has endured to the end. So we know this. What about the number 24? Well, this is where we can't be sure what it means. It could represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So therefore, the number 24 could represent the whole people of God. Those from the Old Testament times who were faithful to God under the Old Covenant and those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ under the New Covenant. That's what it could mean. right? So these 24 elders, which are probably high-ranking angels, may represent God's faithful from every generation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But, but we can't be certain about that. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Once again, uh, they're describing the indescribable. The awesome power and might of the Lord God Almighty. But it's also telling us something more than this. When we get further into the Revelation and God is pouring out his judgment on the world, that same phrase, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, gets repeated several times as God judges the wicked. Right. So this is an image depicting the power of God and it is tying the power of God to his willingness to use his power in righteous judgment. And so this is a reminder for all of those Christians throughout all of the centuries who have been getting persecuted for their faith. God has not forgotten you. At the moment, it may seem that Satan has gotten the upper hand, but God will punish the wicked for what they have done. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, In chapter 5, the seven spirits of God are more fully explained, and it's basically the Holy Spirit. What it means is God isn't restricted to his throne. He is all-seeing and all-knowing. Nothing escapes God's attention. And so those who are suffering in this life shouldn't be questioning if, if God knows about it or not. God does know about it. And in the fullness of time, he will act. So how are we going so far? Is this deep? Is it deep? Right, well, if, if it hasn't already, at this point, it all starts to get a little bit more weird. Okay? Verse 6. And before the throne, there were as it, sorry, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, Like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, for those who love going to the beach and really enjoy having a bit of a splash in the surf, uh, you might have a little bit of trouble grasping this image and, and what it's saying. Biblically, the sea has always been used to represent chaos and evil. Um, Now, if you're a beach lover, you're going to have trouble coming to grips with that. But, of course, it's not hard to understand why. Um, Many a ship has been lost. Many a soul has cried out to be saved. But the storm and the tempest of the raging ocean has always been an image of chaos. And and it is beyond our ability to be able to overcome it. When I was preparing for today, sort of, I was looking for some good photos of, of, of the sea and what it can do to a modern day ship. And I didn't actually end up finding any good photos because it's pretty hard to capture just a photo as a massive wave breaks across the, the deck of something. But all of the I ended up seeing some video of massive container ships, or massive cruise ships, or massive oil tankers. And waves just crashing over the bow and washing over the whole thing. These things would have just massive waves. Imagine what those waves would have done to a, to a ship of old, to an old timber ship. That's amazing. If the wind can do that to cups, imagine what the surf can do to a ship. And so a raging ocean has always been seen as, as chaos that no human can control. It's beyond our ability to overcome. But here we have a sea of glass. Now my boys would probably go, woohoo, barefoot water. Um, it's just smooth, not a ripple, not a ripple. And so it's an image of the physical world yielded to god of course we caught a glimpse of that when when jesus calmed the sea i don't know if you've thought about just how amazing that is and what that would have just done to the disciples when when they're on this boat those seasoned fishermen some of them and they're fearing for their lives and they wake jesus up don't you care we're about to drown he says oh really have a bit of faith and then he just rouses at the wind hey you there be quiet stop that and it just stops and it's just like a sea of glass. Can you just imagine what they would have felt? So it's an image of the physical world yielded to God. Chaos overcome. The four living creatures are a bit more difficult to understand. You remember at the beginning of the series, I hinted that there's going to be a phrase, that I'll probably use a fair bit as we go through this series, um, I don't know what this means, or we can't be sure what this means. We've got an idea, but we can't be sure. Well, this is one of these times. We can't be sure what this means, but but this is the most likely explanation. The first living creature, well, it's not a lion, but we're told that it is like a lion. The second living creature, well, it's not an ox, but we're told that it is like an ox, The third living creature is not a man, but we're told that it has a face of a man. The fourth living creature is not an eagle, but it's like an eagle in flight. The Jewish rabbis used to say, The mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion. And the mightiest among all is man. Now, most commentators agree, as do I, that the four living creatures represent the mightiest of every living creature on earth. And these never cease to worship God. Day and night, they never cease to worship God. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And this, my friends, is the purpose of every living creature. This is the purpose of all of creation, to worship their creator. God created us to worship him. And when Jesus returns and the whole world is fully and completely renewed, all of creation will bow down before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ and praise and worship him. If these are the mightiest of all living creatures and they are worshipping God, this is telling us that every living creature, every mouse, every fly, every flea, every bacteria will worship the Lord God Almighty. But this image is also showing us something else, a little bit more cryptic. They don't just represent the creatures of earth. In some way, these are also heavenly beings. We're told that that they have six wings. Now, if you go into your Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah also had a vision of God on his throne. And he saw creatures with six wings. And he described them as seraphim, one of the orders of the angels. And he said this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his feet, with two he covered his face, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, guess what they said? Holy, 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 Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. These creatures are also described as being full of eyes. They see everything and they witness to God everything that they see. Now that's pretty much the role of the angels at the moment. You know, angels and messengers, they come from God's throne to and from the earth, reporting what they see. And what are they doing? They are also worshipping. At some level, our worship is joined with that of the angels. All creatures, not just earthly creatures, but also heavenly creatures, the physical and the spiritual, are all worshipping God. But we're getting a bit into the realm of guessing now, and I don't like to guess. So let's just stick with what we know. And what do we know? Everything about Chapter Four paints the picture of worship. The Lord our God is worthy to be worshipped because, of, because of who He is. He is the Creator. He created everything, and so the four living creatures never cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy," is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come. You better get used to saying that. You are going to be saying that for a while. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, remembering the 24 elders are representing all the people of God, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you. Our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What's this worship thing about? You know, I think it's wired into us that every one of us has a need to worship. The idolatrous worship created things. They bow down to the sun. They bow down to the moon. They bow down to the stars. The Hindus worship cows. Humanists worship themselves. They worship man and his achievements. Some worship the environment. And ultimately, anyone who doesn't worship the one true God worships the devil. We all have a need to worship. But it is only right to direct our worship in one direction. All of creation, all of the redeemed, worship the Lord God Almighty. All of the angels of heaven worship the Lord God Almighty. Now we preachers, we we always like to preach on something practical, uh, something we can take home and apply to our lives and usually we're looking for something else. Well, for a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is nothing more practical than worship. Worship is never time poorly spent. I'm going to say it again. Worship is never time poorly spent. You may have come to church today looking for answers. You may have come looking for something to fix some problems in your life or looking for something to give you direction in life. Well, the only answer that I have for you today is no matter what's going on in your life, know that God is on his throne. Remember? Remember? He said, these things must take place. And remember that God is on his throne, no matter what is happening. And worship. Worship. Worship in the good. Worship in the bad. Worship. Worship is something we do in prayer. It's something we do in song. Worship is something we do in church. Worship is something we do at home. And we worship in life. We're told it wasn't physically that John stepped into heaven. We're told that in the spirit he was taken into the throne room of heaven. Now that got me thinking, what's, we're seeing here something spiritual. What is spiritual worship? And you know what the Bible tells us spiritual worship is? It's not just going through the religious motions. It's not just singing a song to God. It's not even sounding really passionate as I sing a song to God. It's not even putting my hands up as I worship God, although these things may be expressions of our worship. But it's not what the scripture tells us spiritual worship is. Spiritual worship is a life submitted to Christ. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, And perfect. True worship, spiritual worship, isn't just singing a song. It's a life transformed by God. It's a renewed mind. It's the sacrifice of a life totally submitted to the Lord. Have you ever thought about it in that regard? If those 24 elders dressed in white, with a crown on their head, saying we are the... Ho-. Those images are telling us that these are the holy ones of God. They are the redeemed. They are the, God's people. They are the ones who have overcome. That's what the crown means. They have overcome. They have stayed faithful to God throughout their whole lives. And they are worshipping God. They are representing the worship of the faithful. Representing our worship. Have you ever considered. That when you choose. To love. Like God loves. You're being represented. By those 24 elders around the throne. You are entering into the realm of spiritual worship. Have you considered. That when you forgive, you are entering into the realm of spiritual worship. Every time God convicts you of something that needs to change in your life and you fall on your knees in repentance, you are entering into the throne room of God in that spiritual act of worship. Every time you give to somebody who has nothing, you're entering in to that throne room of God in a spiritual act of worship. Every time you're obedient to God, no matter what it costs, you're entering in to that throne room of God in spiritual worship. We're going to worship now. Can we have the musos come up, please? And we're going to worship in song now. But my prayer is that it won't just be words. Let it be worship of a life submitted to God.